You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. I, I thought maybe the best way to get into this 12-week series is to simply make this statement to you. I love to study my wife. You're like, that's a little weird, Todd. <laughs> Let me tell you why. I like to get to know her, and I don't know her as well as I need to. been married 20, almost 29 years um, we have a good marriage, you know. We've got some things to improve. We're working through things. But uh, we're, we're in a good, decent place. And I like to study her and get to know her. You know, Peter says, men, husbands, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. So it is, uh, every husband has to get to know his wife if you want to live with her. I like to study her and get to know her, find out things about her, because here's what happens. I find that the more I know about Julie, the more I aim for a Ph.D. in Julieology. Now watch this. The more I adore her, the more I want to obey her, serve her, sacrifice for her. The safer I feel in our relationship... And the more unified I feel in our relationship. I would maintain to you that all of those things flow out of simply getting to know her better. And the deeper I get to know her, ask her questions, probe into her past, how was she raised, what do you like, what you don't like. And by the way, you don't know your wife like you think you do, man. I don't know Julia yet like I need to. But the more we commit to that, then these are natural We'll call them benefits. Now, I want to be careful that this analogy does not seem to be equal. But in the same way, all right, as we get to know God more, there are certain benefits that come out of that. We love Him more. We will want to obey him and adore him. We will find that our safety and security increases. Our unity increases. And one of the reasons I think people in church, let's just narrow that down, can we? One of the reasons people at First Family Church, why don't we narrow that down? One of the reasons people at First Family Church at the 830 service, that's Y-O-U. One of the reasons that, that we struggle in loving God Feeling secure and, and safe and, and unified and, and, and obedience. Those things are struggles. We don't really know God. We know what the preacher says about God. And we know what our small group may say about God. And we know what we think we should believe about God. But if we were pressed in a corner and someone said, Do you know God? We might be nervous and... Uh, I, I don't know... I, This next 12 weeks, I hope you get to know God in a way that makes loving Him, obeying Him, adoring Him, serving Him, feeling rested and secure and safe in Him, feeling at one with Him in your union with Christ. I hope all of those things happen. Not because you've been white-knuckling some seminary class, because you're opening the Word and saying, wow, this is God, this is what we believe. And it's that kind of relationship, church, listen, that will take you the distance. 
that lasts. So that's where we're headed for 12 weeks. To learn and understand and get to know God. Now, we're going to do that in lots of ways, not just in the few minutes we have here in the service. So, Pastor Chris, would you come and share with us a myriad of resources that's available over the next 12 weeks to help us get to know God and all the things that we believe about Him? So we have worked to try to break this down to where everyone can get something out of it at a a level during the week. And um, so we've got several different resources and. If you haven't got one, when you leave today, you can get one of these, or I'll be at Connect Central, and you can look over these. When we're studying Bible doctrine, there's one really important thing to begin with, and that is the supernatural nature of God's Word. It is something that is revealed to us, and it was revealed over several hundred years with over 40 different authors. So when Moses wrote the book of Genesis... It was roughly 1500 B.C., before Christ. And when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, it was roughly 90 years after Christ. So in between those two bookends, we have the Bible that was written and inspired by the Holy Spirit, but using 40 different authors. So what that means is that you can't flip to one place in the Bible and learn what it means about the Holy Spirit, or about angels, or about God the Father. It's revealed throughout Scripture. So we see little pieces, like in the very first part of Genesis, when you begin to read about the creation of man, it says that God said, we will make someone in our image. That's interesting, isn't it? That he would use a plural in describing that. And so what systematic theology does is it goes through Scripture... And it takes all of those verses and it compiles them into the topics that we're going to study. So this is the book right here that if you were to go to seminary, this is one of the books that they would ask you to get. 1,250 pages and you'd get a semester to read it. Amen? Isn't that fun? That's what you pay big (laughs) money for. But if you're like me, sometimes you want just a little bit easier to understand. Amen on that. What's really cool about these resources is that these two are written by the same gentleman, Wayne Grudem. So this is the standard textbook that would be for systematic theology, 1,250 pages. But he has compiled that down into a very easy-to-understand 150-page book. So if you're Caleb Z, you read this book, okay? (laughs) If you're Corbin Z... (laughs) you read this book right here do you see the difference these books we've we've given you um, a description of them in this little handout they're linked on our website we've created one landing page where you can go and find all the resources we're going to have videos linked during the week that you can go in and watch through right now media if you're not accessing right now media you are missing a right. huge resource for our church. Think of this, the way they, they promote it is as the Netflix of Christian Bible studies. So there are literally thousands of Bible studies and topics that you can study through Right Now Media. And as a member of First Family, you have free access to it. There's kids programming. If you like Tales, you can put all those on. 
It is an awesome service, and to get access to it, all you have to do is send an email to info at ffclife.com and just put Right Now Media in the subject bar. And that's all explained in here and on our website. I will be at Connect Central after the service. If you have any questions or you want to look at some of these books, uh, stop by. And I hope that as we work through this summer, you will get a, a much deeper understanding and grasp of the mystery of doctrine and that it will truly begin to change your life and your perspective of how amazing our God is. Amen. Chris, thanks for your work on our behalf. A lot of the behind the scenes stuff that we benefit from is really overseen by Chris and I just can't thank him enough for just such being a good partner in this ministry. Can you help me thank Chris just for his really good work at our church? Amen. Well, let's dive in. Let's kind of uh, begin here this 12-week series with really looking at the essential nature of God. Who is God? If you had to kind of boil everything down, like, well, how do we even describe and explain God? We must start with the doctrine of the Trinity, because this is really what is unique about God's essence, okay? Okay. So instead of me just telling you facts, let's read from Scripture how this is revealed. Chris talked about how that's kind of much of the way doctrine is, is, is done in Scripture. There are places we find out facts about certain elements, but it's, it's more or less revealed in the, the storyline of the Bible, God revealing Himself. So let's start in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. I'll show each of these on the screen to you. We're going to walk through 15 verses there are nine different passages. Pretty quickly, this will set the groundwork. So I won't be necessarily exegeting each of these. I'll make a few comments here and there. But here's one of the first. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. When God said, let us make man in what church? Say it with me. But watch this. That plural pronoun is immediately followed in verse 27 with this. So God created man in, what's the next word? His own image. In the image of God, say it with me. He. Created him, male and female, say it, he. So you have here the mystery, almost the incomprehensible statement, revelation of this Trinitarian God. There is an us involved, and yet God says, he made man in his own image. So what's going on with that? That's just the beginning of some of the the revelation of the Trinitarian nature of our God. Back this up with Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. In fact, this is the one where you ought to put a finger... Because this really describes the, uh, the, the, the creedal belief that God asked Israel and commanded, demanded Israel believe. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is, say it with me, one. So whatever us refers to, as this revelation unfolds, it doesn't refer to more than one. Because God is what? He's one. The Lord our God is one. And yet he said, let us make man. So what's going on here, Todd? How does all this explain? That's what we're getting into today. This essential nature of God, that he is a Trinitarian God. By the way, this was so important that, that God told Israel that they would, this one Lord, this one Yahweh, they were to love him with all of their heart, their soul, and their might. And these words that he commanded them, by the way, he commanded them to believe the Lord is one. They should be on their heart. Let's keep moving through the revelation of Scripture, shall we? Isaiah 45, listen to these two verses. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? 
Was it not I, the Lord, Yahweh there? Same as Genesis, same as Deuteronomy. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. There he alludes to this, at least in this case, this this multifaceted kind of like way God expresses himself. He is God, but he's a Savior. There's none besides me. And yet it's in a singular format. Here's verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. You know, God declares His supremacy. God declares His kingship. He doesn't ask you to approve it. He doesn't put it before the elders for a vote. He doesn't ask the deacons to recommend it. He doesn't ask America to make America to make a democracy issue, does He? God declares and has from uh, the beginning of time, He alone is God. Let's keep reading, shall we? Here's the unfolding revelation. Here's Matthew 3, the baptism of God the Son. Look how it's recorded in Scripture. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Here in this this situation, all three... Persons of the Godhead are mentioned. Could this begin to give us insight now into what it means when God said, let us make man in our image, and yet there's one God? Let's keep reading. Here again, the same, I don't even want to use the word trilogy. The Trinity is, I want to be very precise today. Here's the same reference to one God and their three personages. As Jesus left us his great commission, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And we love that verse, don't we? What does that look like? It looks at least like baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why wouldn't he say, just baptize them in God's name? Because he did say that, but he's saying here explicitly, and I'll show this later, these are the three persons of the one God that make, this, make salvation even possible. I'll show you this in a minute. But I think this is why he's now saying when, when, when someone comes to Christ and they're in the family, they're a disciple, baptize them, identify them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. By the way, you just don't teach them all that God commanded. We teach them to do what? Obey all that God commanded. Some of you get upset with me and our elders because we push you to obedience, but... Our job isn't to teach you facts, it's to teach you a life of obedience. This is straight out of the scriptures. We're to baptize people in the name of, singular name of God, which is the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And then we're to teach these people who've been baptized to obey everything Jesus commanded. And we can do this because God is with us to the end of the age. Here's Christ's own words in John 10.30. I... And the Father are what, church? One. Now, grammatically, you you may think, how does that work? Because you've got two things going on in the beginning, and then you've got this idea of one, like God. The the, the Trinity, the Godhead, is an incomprehensible mystery. But to avoid it is, on my part, pastoral negligence. And on your part congregational laziness we need to be willing to kind of 
swim in the depths of things we don't understand, like Paul said in Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and the riches of God. How unsearchable are your ways? How inscrutable are you? That leads us to praise. And the reason some of us don't worship and praise and aren't passionate for praising God is because we've not really swam in these waters. We just avoid them. I'm, I'm going to throw you in the 8 footed end right now. We're doing that. We're, we're in the 12 feet, the 16 feet. Like, man, Todd, this is difficult to grasp. It is. But this is where worship is, is really fueled. I and the Father are one. Let's keep reading, can we? This revelation continuing to unfold in Scripture. Now we're into the early churches. Remember Israel? The garden where it started. The prophets. The ministry of Christ. Here's the early church. First century Paul writes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So Paul sees the God that saved him and called him. This one God that he's to proclaim to Israel as three personages. But notice they have different functions in this verse, don't they? There's grace connected with Jesus Christ. There's love with God. There's fellowship with the Spirit. Doesn't mean the other ones don't share that. But just notice how Paul here does kind of hint, kind of allude to three personages, one God, different functions. So we're we're seeing more of the doctrine of our Trinitarian God unfolding throughout the Scriptures, which really means throughout time. Here's 1 Timothy 2.5. In fact, read this one with me, one of my favorite verses. For there is one God, and there is one mediator, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And we don't have time today to connect all of these to different Old Testament prophecies about the word Christ. But notice here, how many gods does Paul say there is? There's one God, and yet he's encouraged them to remain in the fellowship of the Spirit, the grace of, the, of Christ Jesus. So, again, what's going on here, Todd? It seems like there's this one God that's it's fundamental. This is doctrinal, creedal, non-negotiable, essential yeah, these other, other aspects of it or parts of it, how does it all fit? We'll get there. Next verse. Here's the conclusion. We started in Genesis. Here's Revelation. Look what he says here. Behold, I am coming soon. This is Jesus speaking. God the Son, the one who was baptized at his baptism, the Father spoke and the Holy Spirit descended. This is the one now who's speaking. I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now watch what Jesus does here. In his post-ascension statement. I am the the Alpha and the Omega. You know who also said that? Yahweh said that to Isaiah the prophet. In fact, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 40 through about maybe 46, 47. If you want to read a number of chapters about God's uniqueness and exclusivity and oneness. Those chapters are filled with beautiful commands, beautiful creedal statements about who God is. Here now, Christ is saying, I'm that one. So so that would say, okay, so there is one God, and yet Jesus Christ here is speaking as if he were that one God. Exactly. He says, I'm the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the first and the last. Again, Isaiah 44, Isaiah 46, Isaiah 45 in those areas. He's the beginning and the end. Christ here even lays claim to his eternality. So as you unfold the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity, or what I would say is the essential 
nature of God, who God is, here's what we find. You want to snap a picture of this slide? You might want to write it down. It can be a little wordy, but you will not remember it. I, I have to always keep this handy in written form because it's just an incomprehensible. This goes against the grain of how we think. It is not easily worded. You don't always remember it exactly, and you don't want to get the doctrine of the Trinity wrong. Are you with me, church? We don't want to, get, we don't want to be detoured on the essential nature of God. But here's what we see in the unfolding revelation of Scripture. That God is one being. And this one being is three persons. Already right there, we're we're outside of our ability to understand, okay? But this is what Scripture reveals. And actually, I would say to you, this is what Scripture demands. We're not asked to believe this. Scripture teaches and demands this is our God. He's one being in three persons, and this three-in-one is co-equal and co-eternal in essence and attribute. They're unified, they share, and yet they are different in function. Let me give it to you another way. Here's how Grudem actually says it. God is three persons. Each person is fully God, co-equal, and co-eternal in essence and attribute, even though they're different in function and there is one God. So it's the same thing, just kind of in reverse order. Now, while you're trying to grapple with all that, you're taking your pictures, you're writing it down, that's good. I need to say this to you and be a faithful pastor to you. Listen very carefully. I, I, I admit to you, and I agree with you, this is difficult to get our hands around. But to deny this is to damn your soul. I want there to be no lack of clarity here. With kindness, with gentleness, with long-suffering and meekness, I need to say to you, First Family Church, we don't have all of this wondrous mystery figured out. The revelation, though, throughout time, as revealed in Scripture, teaches us that this is true. And so... When John writes that anyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ is God does not belong to God. When it's demanded of us that if we're to repent, we're to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, we're to confess this with our mouth. You may struggle understanding like I do. We may row that boat for all of our life. Let's dig in deeper. But listen, the minute you say, well, I don't get it, I'll ditch it. The minute you deny it, you damn your soul. That's that's of eternal significance. The doctrine of the Trinity is eternally valuable to your life. What we're saying is that when the writer of Hebrews says that those who come to God, listen, church, listen, those who come to God must believe that He is, then there's a comma, then it says this, and that He rewards those who seek Him. What's He saying? You must believe that, that God is. We're saying that you must believe that God is in essence and nature. One God in three persons. And if you do not believe that, you cannot come to God. So, it is kind of cut and dry in one sense this morning. It's bottom line beliefs. But please, hear the heart of your pastor. I'm asking you not to run away from something you don't quite get. 
but to embrace by faith this one God who in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, has done a wonderful thing for us. He has redeemed us to himself. Okay? So, so this is really the, the aspect of our message where we've kind of dived into the word. And each week we're going to do three things in our message. We're going to dive into the word, we're going to check into class, and we're going to hit the street. Okay? So now that we've seen how this is unfolded in scripture, let's ask ourselves, what are words for this? How is over history, how, is, how have people kind of formulated this? What do they said about this? What do we believe and not believe? Let's put some words we can like handles. It's a lot of scripture, a lot of truth, a lot of time. A lot of things I don't understand, Todd. Can we get some handles? Yes, we can. This is called monotheism. This is what we believe and this is what we are. We are monotheists, okay? This is in juxtaposition to other isms, such as, let me show you the things we are not, things we do not believe. We are not polytheists. Now, you know what that means, of course. Many gods, right? But we're not polytheists. We're monotheists. So we're not polytheists. We're not tritheists. And you may be fooled by that one. Well, that seems like it could work. Tri, like Trinity, and we're theists, like God. So maybe we're tritheists. No, tritheism believes in three gods. We don't. We believe there is what? One God. Paul said it in First Timothy. God declared it in Deuteronomy. Isaiah says it was that way from, from of old. So there's one God. So we're not tritheists. We're monotheists. Also, we are not modalists. Now, modalism or mo- a modalist, it's kind of a large word, but I would take off the ending and just think about modes. There are many people who believe that there is one God and he just kind of shows up in different forms. Like the Holy Spirit's a part of God. Or Jesus was like a form of God. But that's not what Trinitarian doctrine believes. We believe that Jesus is God. We believe that God the Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? So we don't believe in modalism. God just didn't kind of take some appearance and show up like, okay, I'll just give part of myself to the earth for a few years. We'll call his name Jesus and that'll be a form of God. That's not true. God in human flesh, completely. One, uh, two natures in one. There's more there I don't want to get to now. Just know we're not modalists, we're not polytheists, we're not tritheists, we're not adoptionists. Adoptionism is the belief that Jesus was created, but at his baptism, God adopted him as his son and kind of made him. And I think the word they use often is a God. So we're not adoptionists, we don't believe in adoptionism, nor do we believe in subordinationism, which they would say in this case, Christ is eternal. That he wasn't created, but he's still in some way inferior. Like he's just not all God. But he's been around forever like God. It's called subordinationism. It came out of Arianism, which was something from the 300s. A bishop in Alexandria uh, believed that that Jesus was, was not fully God. And thankfully, Arian was opposed by one of my heroes of early church history, Athanasius. And it was over one letter, by the way. One Greek letter. Out of that, of course, came the Nicene Creed, the Athanasius Creed, which establishes that, God is, that Jesus is not 
inferior to God. He wasn't begotten by God. He wasn't created. He is God, the full divinity and deity of Jesus Christ. And so these things help us understand we are, not, if we are not these things. If you hear someone talk about them, and you're like, oh, what does that word mean? Should I say yes or no? This is a good week to kind of get your hands around this. Go by Connect Central. Go by the website. Uh, pick up some resources and know that we are monotheists. All right? And we're not polytheists, tritheists, adoptionists, modalists, subordinationists, or Arianists. Okay? Now, let's just stay in class for a bit. You got your minds in high gear, I hope. So how does this God that we can't really grasp, but we believe because we're not going to damn our souls, we will, by faith, believe that God is in all of its complexity and mystery. We will believe that. How does this show itself? Well, that's where we talk about then God's attributes because it's God's attributes that show us who He is and what He's like. Let me just give you a list of two of these, okay? I won't go into great depth here. Just know, first of all, there is what we call his communicable, let's start with incommunicable attributes. Let's start with those. These are attributes, just take a picture of this, I'm not going to read through these or explain them. These are attributes that God, for the most part, does not share with us. Now, you could argue that, and by the way, scholars debate this a little bit. They say that some are shared more than others, and there's a list that can change. There's, There's different lists based on who you read. So this is not like a concrete, quantified list here. This is the list that I... I like and Grudem likes it. I think we're good with it. But there may be other ones. Wouldn't make them wrong. But these are the incommunicable attributes. These are things that you could not just say, well, I, I want to be that. Like, you can be holy in one sense, yes. But the holy in the sense of when God says, I'm holy, he means otherly. He means not like you. You could never be otherly. You couldn't be spirit, right? You couldn't just be only spirit. John 4 says that about God. He's spirit. He's holy. He's set apart. He's never known sin. He's never sinned. That'll never happen to you. So there's a sense in which you can say, well, I I, want to see God make me holier, but you'll never be holy in the sense of otherly like that. And the rest of these, infinite, transcendent, and so forth, those are things you'll never be all-powerful, all-knowledgeable. But these are attributes of God that show up in His uh, actions. These are ones that, generally speaking, they're not shared with us. But there are ones that are shared with us that we can, oh, so God's this way, and so that's why I'm this way. It doesn't mean we're that way in a perfect degree, but we get a glimpse into our God through these what we call communicable attributes, such as goodness and justice, knowledge, rationality, truthfulness. So just understand that we, we see the Trinitarian God demanded in the revelation of Scripture, and then we see it displayed in the actions of our God both in his incommunicable attributes as well as his communicable ones. Now, that can be a lot to grasp as well. So where do we see this played out? I think one of the the most beautiful pictures of God's essence and nature and his attributes all showing up to us are in salvation. In fact, I just need to kind of pause here and, and share this with you. Listen very carefully. Chris was, was spot on. And I'll show you a slide that will kind of say this in a minute. Don't worry. But we don't, There's not a passage of Scripture that I can go to you and say, okay, here's the doctrine of the Trinity. Boom, there it is. Believe it. There are hints at it. There are moments we see it. There are um, 
Uh, it's like you're going into a cave full of great treasures. All the treasures are there, but the light's very dim. So you're kind of like, what does that say and what does that mean? But when someone comes into the cave with you, when someone makes a personal appearance with a light and turns a light on, then it's like, oh, I get this now. It's always been there, but it's light that magnifies it. Watch this. The Trinity is revealed in Scripture start to finish. But it's the, it's the appearances of this Godhead that give light to our cave. What do I mean? Especially the occurrences of redemption. So when Jesus came at his first coming, and God was with us, when he would claim, I am God. You see what I'm saying? So suddenly the, the folks are like, oh, I get this. That's what he's been saying. That must be what us means. I, I see what he means when he talks about sending a Savior. I, I get it. Now he says he's a redeeming God. This is what that looks like. Oh, the cave has more light. Beautiful treasures in here. But now I'm seeing them because Christ has shown up. Oh, this is God. What did he say to the disciples? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at me, Jesus said. And then when Jesus ascended, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit comes. God, the Spirit, now indwells every believer. Oh, so, so this is God in us? Yeah. So Christ would say, who lives in you? Christ, the hope of glory. So Paul's mind, he says, Christ lives in you, but Christ is God. God, the Holy Spirit, is in us, his power. So oh, there must be one being in three personages. Yes, that's our Trinitarian God. And though Scripture reveals it consistently, it's, it's the appearances. It's, it's when Christ comes and the Holy Spirit comes. What we call the occurrences of redemption by James White. He uses that phrase. It's really good. When those occurrences occur, then we begin to say, oh, so that's what a Trinitarian God looks like. And in each of those occurrences, appearances, you see God's attributes. He is just. He's merciful. He's loving. He's holy. He's transcendent. He's independent. He's good, he's wise, he's truthful. Does that make sense? All of those are seen as the cave gets more light when the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit invade human history. And we begin to see, oh, so this is the one God that we're to love with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our strength. More specifically, here's what happened, so to speak, or how it shows up. We say this in theological circles. You may have heard this as well. It's a good way to get your hand around the, the Trinitarian aspect of salvation. That the Father planned salvation from the beginning of, of uh, excuse me, from, from before the foundations of the world. He chose us. Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 talk a lot about this. So the Father planned it. The Son purchased it. On the cross, Acts 20, 28, that he purchased the church with his own blood, but the Holy Spirit applies it. No man comes to the Father except the Spirit draw him. The Son of Man's lifted up. So the Father ordains that Christ be crucified as the satisfactory payment for sin. And with that sacrifice in view, as that is preached, what Paul calls the foolishness of the gospel, as that's preached, the Holy Spirit works on hearts and draws men to Christ. It's one God in three persons doing what our souls desperately need. 
This is our God, church. This is the God of the Bible. This is the Trinitarian three-in-one God of the Scriptures. And I would urge you again, don't deny what is essential to the saving of your soul. In fact, can I just ask if anyone here has maybe for the first time thought, you know, I, I've never, I didn't know this. I wasn't aware that Scripture revealed God in this way from start to finish. And I didn't know that it was kind of, uh, it broke through in history in, the, in, a, in a person named Jesus, in the Holy Spirit. I didn't know any of that. But if this is what it takes to be saved, if it takes believing that God is, which means that, that God is one being in three persons, then, then this morning I believe. I don't want my soul to be damned. I don't deny what the Bible says. So yes, God would, would what you planned and what the Son purchased and what the Spirit is applying, would you, God, save me now? So how does that look, Todd? There are many people in this auditorium who ride in those very chairs have just simply, with their eyes open or closed, have said, God, I believe this morning what your word says about who you are and what you've done. And would you save me by your grace? It's, all, it's, it's, not, it's not complicated It's not simplistic, because it obviously is a wondrous mystery, but it is simple. Paul said, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So this morning, for the first time, you're thinking, you know, I I just never really quite caught this, but I'm in. Yeah, I believe God is. And I will say this morning, if that heart of repentance to turn from things you believe that were wrong to turn to what's right and to embrace what God says about his son and his spirit then God will save you and this morning you've gone from darkness to light by simply knowing that okay I believe God is and that Jesus came and he died yes amen amen that's called being saved becoming a Christian it doesn't have to happen at an altar you don't have to have your head bowed you don't have to write a card. You have to believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is God and confess with your mouth that Christ raised him from the dead. And when those things occur, God will keep his word and save sinners. Amen? So can I just encourage and urge anyone here who's never believed to do that right now? In your seat, just believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let me bring this to a conclusion, can I? Because I think we hear all this knowledge and we can think, man, uh, you know, I leave here, Todd. I've got to go to work tomorrow. I've got to make something right with my spouse. I've got to this, this with my kids. I've got like real life stuff. Like, I'm in. I believe this. But like, uh, does the Trinity really affect, you know, my life at Wells Fargo, you know? I think it does. Here's an app for you to download. Let's hit the streets with this simple app. Ready? Value, unity, and diversity. All right? Value, unity, with diversity. You say, Todd, how do you get that out of the Trinity? Because in the Trinity, we find one God in perfect relationship with one another, sharing essential nature and attributes. And yet we find complete harmony with their different functions. Sometimes that's hard in our families. Would you agree with that? 
because they're not like us. I mean, just think about marriage. You come from two different backgrounds, and you crash in this thing called a ceremony. You merge into one flesh. You're like, man, I feel like 15 fleshes right now. Like, I didn't know this about him or he about her. Like, man, how are we going to make this into one life? I didn't. Yeah, sometimes the unity and the diversity don't go well in a home. You have kids, you're like, hey, he's more like you than me. That's your kid. You ever said that, you know? Like, or maybe you are adopted, or you have all these things you need to think about, right? Here's what I'm saying, that sometimes we can struggle with, with merging unity and diversity, but here's what the Trinity shows us, that it is possible, and God does it perfectly. He does it perfectly. So that means that he will empower us to appreciate and value both. We're not trying to lower doctrine and say, well, we'll just kind of let the diversity thing win. There's multiple gods or even in other monotheistic religions. Their God works. We can have their one God and our one God. That doesn't work either. There's one God. So we don't lower the bar, but by the same token, we'll learn to value different functions. So sometimes it's hard in the home. Sometimes it's hard in the church. Would you agree with that? You should agree with that. We kind of like it to work the way we like it to work. and We think everyone should be made like us and like what we like and do what we do and kind of be bent our way, but that's just not church. You get more than five folks together, you're out of that league already. Preferences will abound, personalities. And so sometimes it's hard for churches to get beyond certain number levels. And I'm going to say that makes them better. But one of the reasons churches are small And sometimes, as a result of that, they don't impact many people. is because they've not learned to value unity with diversity. They've learned to value, like, you know what? I could never be made like that. I'm glad I'm not, but I'm glad he or she is. And to realize in the body, God's brought all kinds together, including the church, to get something significant accomplished. Does that make sense, guys? So we should value this in our homes. The Trinity should affect our homes. It should affect our churches, but let me just tell you where I think it should affect us the most. It should affect us in how we view the globe. Do you know what God is doing globally? God is redeeming to himself a people from every language group on the earth. Now we can debate how many of those there are. Did that occur? Has it happened yet? Was it fulfilled? And Were those listed? Are they in Deuteronomy? Maybe they're... Unknown. We can debate all that. But here's the point. You can't debate or deny this. That is what God's doing. He's redeeming to himself a people that's way bigger than white. (laughs) And watch this. It's way bigger than black. It's way bigger than Latino. It's way bigger than Asian. God's redeeming to himself. Watch this. Not a Jew or a Gentile family. God's bringing to himself a Christian family. He's bringing the two, Jews and Gentiles, which is everybody, by the way. He's bringing those two together. And he didn't say this. He's not forming uh, like a a Jewish-Gentile breed. He's making a new man out of the two. Something totally new is coming out of the two. It's called Christ's body. That's what God is doing. He values unity with diversity. And all across his globe, red and yellow, black and white, They are precious in His sight. And because that is doctrinally true, because people are leaving from this church and going to closed, isolated country, because folks are already living there 
currently because this is kind of a real sending mentality we have locally and globally because God is doing this. We should value this. We should value the fact that we can be one church with Christ as our head. We're one body, and yet we're all different. Why? Because, because God is bringing together all kinds of different people, but he's bringing them together under one banner and one name and one God. And one day when history culminates, there will be people from every nation language, tribe, and tongue assembled around the throne. But they'll not be worshiping many gods, multiple gods. They'll be worshiping the one God who from Genesis to Revelation has described himself as one God in three persons. This is the Trinitarian God. Let his Commitment to unity and diversity affect you in your family, in your church, and in your view of the globe and what he's doing across this earth.